Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Um, I'm excited to uh, just introduce you to our guest preacher this morning, uh, which is uh, Daniel Barons. He's the, uh, he's the curate for this year over at St. Peter's, which basically is like a young minister in training. And um, I just wanted to say a few words about Daniel. It, it, it probably appears from the last two weeks, especially when Brian filled in for me last week, that all the young men at St. Peter's are taking over our preaching ministry here. <laughs> but I'm totally fine with that if we're going to get children's sermons like that. That's good. Um, but uh, no, just, just to say, uh, Daniel Behrens um, is a guy that, that John and I went to seminary with, um, and Chris and Christina uh, went to seminary with. Uh, and um, it, our, the seminary is, a, is an Anglican seminary, but probably about half the students there were not Anglican. It's a very interdenominational place, you know. We don't bite each other and stuff like that, you know. But, um, but there, there, were, um, there were some students that were there that I was like, you know, not, not because I don't think that, like, the other denominations are, like, not because I think that they're, like, invalid or something, but just I really want this person to become an Anglican while they're here because I really want to, like, continue seeing them and doing ministry with them. And that's very much how I felt about Daniel. Uh, he's, a, he's a great guy, um, was super insightful in class, always enjoyed um, chatting with him at the lunch tables and stuff like that. So I'm so happy we've had him on the books here to, to bring the word for us here on this first Sunday of Advent for a while. So can I say a prayer for you? And, and also um, his wife Rebecca is here with us this morning worshiping with us. So um, come say hi to them or, or, or go to them for prayer during communion. That'd be great. Let me say a prayer for you. Father in heaven, I thank you for this brother. I thank you for the work that you've been doing uh, in his life for many, many years. And Father, we ask that you would um, use your word to revive our hearts this morning, to revive us to worship. Lord, give us a clearer picture of who you are. Father, give Daniel a clear mind and give him salty words to edify your people. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, Taylor. So the only, the only bummer about being a guest preacher is that you don't get to hear the regular preachers preach. So that's my only regret in being here this morning is I don't get to hear John or Taylor share the word. But I'll do my best. Yeah, it's a, it was a real honor to know Chris and John and Taylor in seminary, and I really looked up to all of them very much. Um, so it's really cool that my wife and I are now in Tallahassee and kind of following the... Uh, the uh, Northern migration, if you will, to Tallahassee. Um, so it's good to be here this morning, and I think that the Lord has some good things for us in his word. So they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So today we're going to talk about the future. That might not sound extremely practical. We're all busy people, we lead, lead full lives, and it might be better to talk about something that's happening now, or maybe to give some instruction for how to live now. And yet, scripture and the tradition of the church invites us in countless ways to think about the future, to think about what's ahead and what perhaps has not happened yet. This is the first Sunday of Advent, as we've already mentioned. And Advent is kind of a funny season. If you think about Christmas, for example, on Christmas we remember what happened on Christmas. On Easter, we remember what happened on Easter. 
Advent isn't quite like that. Advent is a time of waiting. Advent is a time when not a whole lot seems to be happening. And it points us to the future, not to something that so much has already happened. Perhaps we would do well to let Scripture and Advent together point us to the future, take our eyes off the present moment for just a bit, and see the future as God reveals it to us. And maybe, just maybe, when we do that, we will find an amazing amount of guidance and strength for today. So let me ask you, what are you waiting for? What's something that you look forward to? What's something that you would like to see happen? Or maybe more honestly, what do you really think is going to happen? There's a lot of speculation after the last presidential election on what's going to happen. What's going to happen? If you look at the stock market, there's all these changes going on based on what people think is going to happen. It, ha it matters to us what we think is coming. So what are you waiting for? In our Old Testament reading today, Isaiah shows us the future. It's clearly something that has yet to come when he says, It shall come to pass in the latter days. And what he describes is God's reign, God's kingdom. He describes a kingdom at peace. Now there's kind of two kinds of peace that we see in this, in this description. There's peace between God and humanity. That's where it starts. It's an image of all the nations of the world coming to God's house, coming into God's presence, being instructed by him, and being sent out in obedience. It's not unlike what happens to us on Sunday morning. We all come from our backgrounds, from our homes, from our jobs. We gather here in God's presence. We hear his word, we're fed by him, and we're sent out by him to a life of obedience. That's sort of what's happening in the first couple verses. And that's a sermon or a sermon series in itself, peace between God and man. It's a wonderful truth. But that's not what we're going to focus on this morning. Instead, let's look at verse 4. In verse 4, we see peace between the nations of the world, what we might call peace on earth. Let me read this verse again for us to keep it fresh in our minds. The Lord shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So I want us to focus on this image about swords and plowshares. And to do that, I want to think about two kingdoms. The first is a kingdom at war. The second is a kingdom at peace. The first could be subtitled, The Way Things Are. The second could be subtitled, The Way Things Will Be. So first, a kingdom at war. We live in a world that is full of weapons. Pepper spray, knives, swords, pistols, rifles, Machine guns, bombs, tanks, nuclear missiles. Isaiah mentions just two kinds, swords and spears. When I was growing up, my parents took me to a lot of art museums. And I was a very sophisticated child. 
I was pretty aesthetically advanced. <laughs> I hope I spelled that right. And uh, so what do you think my favorite part of the art museum was? Maybe the, the Renaissance religious art. Maybe the, the Dutch masters. Maybe um, the Impressionists, all the, the pastel stuff. Well, no, not exactly. My brothers and I ran straight to the armor room. <laughs> Those are the best art museums, the ones that have armor rooms. <laughs> so there were helmets and shields, swords, lances, suits of chainmail. It was awesome. It was really intriguing, and a lot of the pieces were even beautiful. They had plumes, patterns, engraving, and writing pictures on these weapons. Those gilded pieces point to human creativity and artistry, technology developing over the years. But they're also material evidence that mankind has been at war for a very, very long time. It goes back to the Middle Ages and way back to the earliest evidence that we have. You ever sit, take a step back and ask, why is that? Why are we so habitually fighting and using weapons and at war? Why did we have to learn war, to borrow from Isaiah, in the first place? And we could try to answer that from a lot of different perspectives, from sociology, psychology, history. But let's think about it personally. If you own a gun, if you have a gun in your home, why is that? Or if you don't own a gun, what might lead you to buy a gun? What would it take to send me to Academy Sports this week to buy a gun? What might be my motivations in doing that? What would it take? Well, let me throw out a couple possibilities. One would be that I'm concerned about home safety. Now, my wife and I live in the country. We're about two miles, maybe less, from a uh, prison. And I think about this. What if some crazy person breaks out of prison and we're one of the first houses that they find on their way to freedom? <laughs> it's a scary thought. I don't talk about this a lot. <laughs> what if they come to our house? What are we going to do? And I think it would be pretty nice to have a gun to be able to say, okay, if that person comes in, we can threaten them off the property. Hmm. So that's one reason, fear for our safety. One reason why I might get a gun. Another, slightly less uh, understood, uh, yeah, another one is if you want to take something from somebody else. You have a really nice car. My car is not so nice. <laughs> and you don't want to give up your nice car. I don't understand it. Well, one possibility is that if I can threaten you with injury or death, maybe you'll let me have your car. <laughs> Um, you won't give it to me for free so I can take it from you. So that would be a reason to arm yourself. You might call it greed or just aggression or perhaps desperation. You're hungry. You don't have any food. Sort of the Jean Valjean situation. You're not a bad person per se, but you're desperate. And so you get a gun so you can take what you need from someone else who maybe has more than they need. So fear, aggression, desperation, Maybe you're in an actual war. Maybe there's a whole group of people out there who want to see you dead. Maybe your family and your whole way of life is under threat. 
and you feel that you have no choice but to arm yourself and fight back. That would be another very compelling reason to buy a gun. So those are just a few possibilities of why we arm ourselves. They're diverse, and they're tied to the brokenness of the world. There's not a superficial solution to any of those problems. This is what the New Testament writer James says. He asks, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James is telling us what our own experience likely tells us as well, that violence is a symptom of a deeper problem, a disorder that runs through the very depths of our inner selves. Fear, greed, aggression, desperation. Those are the things that move us to arm ourselves. And we will make a weapon out of anything. This image of plows and uh, pruning hooks. Um, it, throughout scripture, there's a few places where the reverse happens. Plows are turned into swords. Pruning hooks are turned into spears. Apparently, they were the, the sharpest uh, metal object that was readily available, the, the pointy part of the plow that breaks through the ground. So when war came, it was the first thing to be turned into a weapon. So those were not originally weapons, but they were easily turned into weapons. So it's sort of like the, the classic image of a mob with the, the, what's it called, the pitchfork. That's sort of what the pruning hook is. It's like the, the thing you grab when the mob is coming, or when you want to join a mob. <laughs> So again, these are not originally weapons, but they're things that, under threat of violence or aggression or whatever it is, get turned into weapons. We live in a world of war, a world that is filled with weapons. And the world Isaiah speaks to, the politically fractured Middle East of his time, was no different. So given this long-standing, deeply-rooted human tradition of violence, what Isaiah says is shocking. The nations shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So we've looked at a kingdom at war, the way things are. Now let's look at a kingdom at peace, the way things will be. What God promises to do is truly amazing. He promises to do what no council or treaty or tyrant has ever been able to accomplish. To establish true and lasting peace, not just in one place at one time, but in the whole world. And how does this happen? Here the beginning of verse 4. The Lord shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. God doesn't just forcibly take away the weapons. I think this is really interesting. He doesn't just walk into the saloon of this world with an even bigger gun and say, listen up everybody, drop your weapons. This is, this is no more, no more, drop it. He doesn't do that. 
Now he does sort of do that at times in scripture, thinking of uh, the, the chariots of Egypt being thrown into the Red Sea. God does forcibly disarm people at different times. But that's not what the picture is in Isaiah. God settles the disputes of the nations. He makes a peace so deep and so lasting that no one wonders if they should keep that shotgun over the mantle. No one wonders if they'll ever need that handgun in the console. It's just not, not something that you think you'll ever need again. Nobody will care about nuclear submarines or missile silos or what North Korea has or doesn't have. It will be an obvious fact that violence will never break out again. War and violence will be a thing of the past. And there will just be no point in keeping those old suits of armor around. We'll look at our weapons and we'll think, well, I might as well put this thing to good use. <laughs> and what will we turn them into? Farm tools. So we alluded to this earlier with the kids. What does a plow do? You drag it through the soil, it breaks up hard ground, creates a furrow, and you plant seeds there. And the seeds grow into plants and food and what we need to survive. That's the kind of thing that we make out of our weaponry. Things that lead to beauty and health and joy. Isn't that a beautiful picture? When God sets up his kingdom, he doesn't just take away the weapons. He takes away the need for weapons. <laughs> he leads us to turn what was used to take away life into something that we use to give life. With every threat and every fear and every dispute settled forever, we will get back to what we were originally created to do, gardening. <laughs> we use all our passion, all our intelligence, all our skill to use the good things of this world to serve others and to bring forth life. To borrow an image from the Lord of the Rings, after the long, long battle is over, we'll come back to the Shire and get planting. <laughs> so let me ask you again, as I did at the beginning, what are you waiting for? What is your outlook on the future? Do you anticipate an endless cycle of war? Or do you hear this word from Isaiah that there will be a kingdom at peace? Now at this point, it would be easy to lead into a plea for us to bring this transformation now. To beat our swords into plowshares now. Now we are called to be peacemakers. And we all need to ask ourselves, what does it look like to be citizens of a kingdom at peace, yet living in a kingdom at war? How do we prepare for this future? How do we bear witness to it? That is not a simple question. But our word from Isaiah is not primarily a command. Isaiah is not telling us to do this. It is a promise. He says, it shall come to pass. It shall come to pass. Can we believe that that day is really coming? How's it looking? <laughs> well, 
consider a few things. First, consider who the speaker is. Not a politician who makes promises about the future, but really can't control all the variables. No, this is Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth. He is the one with all the resources and all the wisdom to bring this about. When he says he will do something, he will do it. The whole scripture is a testimony to the fact that God's promises are sure. God's promises are trustworthy. If he says he's going to do it, he will do it. Can we trust this word again? Another reason I would submit to you is that we all long for peace. We all long for peace on earth. And we look to the next politician or the next tree or the next technology to solve it for us. Why do we do that? If we had just evolved out of constant warfare, why would we have this deeply embedded desire for peace and actually a conviction that maybe, maybe we'll get there someday? Why would we have that if things have always been this way? And that's just the end of the story. Our desire testifies to the fact that God created us for a kingdom of peace. And if he created us for it, can we trust him to establish it, even if it's not here yet? We have another reason to believe this promise when we remember that it has already started to come true. God has already converted a weapon, an instrument of torture, into an instrument of life. One of the prayers for the week after Easter says, O God, by the passion of your blessed Son, you made an instrument of shameful death to be for us the means of life. God turned mankind's evil intentions into the greatest good possible. The cross, a weapon of execution, has been transformed into a life-giving tree. Our churches and our homes and our bodies every Sunday are marked with the sign of a cross. A cross. A weapon. It's a vivid proclamation that God does indeed bring death out of life. I think we're used to thinking of Jesus making peace between God and man. The possibility of a real relationship with God now, despite our sin. And he does indeed do that. He pays the price for sin so that we can be forgiven and reunited with God. That is good news. But that is not the extent of the good news. We also believe that God will establish peace between man and man, between humanity. Colossians 1 says that through, through Jesus, God will reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. Don't miss the fact that peace with God will lead to peace between people. Real, lasting peace, world peace, is just as much a fruit of Christ's sacrifice as the forgiveness we enjoy now. Jesus has died. He has been raised, and he is seated on his kingly throne. And it is only a matter of time before he comes back and sets everything, absolutely everything, right. So what are we waiting for? In the season of Advent, 
What are we waiting for, looking for, longing for, preparing for? We wait for the day when we and the whole world will beat our swords into plowshares. We wait for a kingdom at peace. Let me close with last week's prayer, which speaks of Jesus' kingly rule. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.